The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. It is my pleasure and honor to welcome today Patricia Buck, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention. I met Patricia at a meeting on health at the St. Louis Community College, and we struck up a friendship, and we started talking about foodborne illness, and I learned that Patricia Buck and her daughter, Barbara Kowalczyk, were featured in Food, Inc., because it was Patricia's grandson who very sadly died after eating a contaminated ground meat patty. It was contaminated with E. coli 0157H7. Patricia, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. I wonder if you can tell me the story of Kevin. What happened? How did he get sick exactly? And how did you and your daughter Barbara end up as co-directors of the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention? Well, in the first place, you have to go back to 20, 2001, okay? Mm-hmm. And this was in August, and my daughter and her husband, who at that time had two beautiful young children, a little girl, Megan, age five, and Kevin, age two, and they had just finished building their first home and we were very excited about it, so we went for a visit And while we were there, Kevin got sickened, and of course, at first, he was at home because he was just, you know, throwing up and having a little bit of diarrhea. But after two days of that, it progressed into bloody diarrhea, and he went to the hospital, the emergency care unit, urgent care, and they sent him home because bloody diarrhea can occur for a lot of different reasons. But by the end of that horrific night, it was very clear that Kevin was in some kind of very deep distress, and the next morning he was uh, hospitalized. We spent the next eight days in the hospital with Kevin. We had a family member with him the whole time, and he progressed from the bloody diarrhea and throw up with, you know, black bile to where he could no longer breathe easily, so he was put on a respirator. His kidneys failed, so he was put on a dialysis machine, and he continued to have serious problems with blood clotting and with a racing heart and with high blood pressure. And all of these were treated as they appeared. The doctors at the beginning of the process after hemolytic uremic syndrome was identified as the cause said that we just had to wait till the disease ran its course, which took about anywhere from oh, a couple of days, maybe 7 to 15 days, So when Kevin died on day 12, we thought we were really, really approaching the end of the outer limits for the disease running its course. Actually, what killed Kevin was gangrene of the large and small intestines, but of course we didn't know that until after the autopsy. It was a very, very devastating death. I've been through other deaths before, but I never saw anything like what happened to my grandson. And when he died, I personally knew that I was going to have to do something because we knew food had been implicated in this illness at that point. 
and the response we got from public health after his death even more firmly convinced me that something had to be done because the normal consumer does not really have the protections it needs in the current food safety system that we have in America. And I think given the fact that children are the ones that are most affected as well as the elderly, I feel very strongly that we have to protect those that need the protection. You know, it seems like the messages that we receive all too often are that the United States, now, now, the United States has the safest food supply in the world. And yet, I don't think a week goes by that I don't hear about some sort of recalled food, either from E. coli or salmonella, campylobacter. And when, as you mentioned, when children die, it is absolutely earth-shattering and not acceptable in this great country of ours. Well, I would, of course, agree with that, but I will also point out to people that I have looked at other food safety systems, and we have a decent food safety system. We don't particularly have the best, but we certainly don't have the worst. Foodborne illness is now a global problem. The World Health Organization says that each year there are over 2 billion people that are sickened, and of that number, 2 million die, and of the 2 million, something like 1.9 are children. Again, this is totally unacceptable that we have these kinds of problems with our food. And today we have a global food supply. Look at going to your grocery store and see where your food is coming from. You'll see there's a lot coming from out of this country. And yet we don't have the authorities in place that would adequately protect us. And we need to work towards improving that. Well, how did you find out what particular food was the the cause of your grandson's illness? Well, that was a quest that took, quite frankly, uh, almost two years of our time and effort because within, oh, I'd say eight weeks of the death of Kevin, the Wisconsin County Public Health Department, the local one, told my daughter and her husband that they could no longer pursue the trying to find the source of his illness. Fortunately, we did have Kevin's isolate pattern for the bacterium E. coli 0157H7 that had infected him was submitted to CDC, and through their PulseNet program, they were able to match it to a recall that occurred, or that was, it didn't occur, it was a recall that was finally issued Um, on, I believe, August 16th, which was after Kevin's death. But we could never conclusively prove that that recalled meat was what made him sick. People have to understand that 70% or 80% of all foodborne illnesses that occur are sporadic, and we really do not have the capability at the local and state levels to do the type of uh, reporting that is really going to be effective in finding out more about the sporadic or individual cases of disease. And when an individual such as my daughter and her husband 
try and go up against the rather large industries to investigate the source of the illness, which what Barbara was trying to do, uh, you run into some snags because there are protections in place for the industry so that they do not have to share with an individual consumer the distribution list. And without those lists, you cannot conclusively prove that their product was the source of the illness. So in the end, after three years, Barbara and Mike abandoned their litigation suit. Hmm. But we know that E. coli 0157H7 typically comes from ground meat. So was that your clue to go back and look at this ground meat patty as the underlying source? Yes, most uh, actually when... uh, local health department came to interview us immediately while Kevin was still sick in the hospital and alive, they told us, you know, what we're looking for is ground meat Mm -hmm. (laughs) sources because that's the ground meat and ground poultry are the ones that most likely carry the E. coli 0157H7 pathogen. But between the meat and the poultry, it's the meat much more likely. Right. So we had some clues given to us by the health department as to what we should look for. There are some foods that are more risky than others, and as people know today, there are problems like for E. coli 0157H7 on spinach leaf and other you know produce that is uh, put out there, and it's just a much wider problem than what it was was apparent in 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people need to understand this is why dietitians make recommendations to never eat hamburger patties that are not cooked through oh, thoroughly because that's the in the grinding of the meat is when we have bacteria taken from the outside and placed on the inside of the meat, uh, yeah. much less likely to experience E. coli from, say, eating a steak that's a little undercooked versus a burger or a ground meat patty. So, you know, I think that your advocacy is allowing Kevin to live on and save other children's lives. As tragic as this is, I I commend you for using this tragedy to save other children's lives. Well, thank you. Thank you. We, We strongly think that we would not want anyone else to experience what we've been through. And if you talk to any other foodborne illness victim, they will almost word for word say the same thing. One of the things that we have found very devastating as we've moved through this journey is that in meeting some of these other victims, many of them live. And part of the problem, especially for the E. coli 0157H7 kids who got HUS, one-third of them will have long-term health problems, such as one little girl I know, she's now five years of age. She was sickened when she was two, and uh, they're talking about when they're going to do her first kidney transplant. Mm. You know, your website that you and Barbara developed, the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention, and I want to guide our our listeners to simply www.foodborneillness.org, is a fantastic resource for anyone who is interested in preventing and being a a good citizen, a good food citizen and helping to prevent these in the future. 
I really find one section of your website very interesting, and that is the discussion of long-term impacts. And you, you brushed on this with the little girl who's now facing a kidney transplant. But many times we think of foodborne illness as, well, you know, you get a little diarrhea, you throw up, it passes, and then you're fine. And actually, that's not the case. And we're looking now at long-term illnesses, the long-term impact of having a foodborne illness years, even decades earlier. Do you want to talk about that? Well, uh, a year ago, November 12th, we issued our first white paper, which the report was called The Long-Term Health Outcomes of Selected Foodborne Illnesses, and it is downloadable on our website, so you can certainly, anyone can go there and uh, read it. And what we did is we got four physicians who treated very specific diseases and one foodborne illness researcher, and we asked them to summarize what is known about the long-term health outcomes. And what these pathogens can cause is sometimes a little bit frightening. I mean, salmonella is one of the common or the most common trigger for uh, reactive arthritis, which is very painful. Lots of times that type of arthritis is temporary and goes away, but other times it's very chronic and sticks with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You can look at listeria and the numbers of children, in particular children who were in utero when their mothers contracted listeriosis, there's a high incidence of stillbirths for those babies, and the ones that do survive, many of them have long-term uh, health outcomes. Uh, Campylobacter is the uh, leading predictor and cause for Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is another syndrome that causes paralysis. And uh, then, of course, you have E. coli 0157H7 and other variations of that STEC disease that can cause HUS. The last one that we looked at was Toxoplasma gondii, which is actually a foodborne parasite. But again, the implications for pregnant women for handling raw poultry or being in contact with uh, cat or kitten feces, either at the litter box or in the soil when they garden, uh, can cause uh, toxoplasmosis, which can lead to very significant uh, health outcomes when the children mature. It's so we looked at all of these, and it's in the report, and I, I would recommend people that are really interested in finding out more about that to, you know, read it. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Patricia Buck. She is the Executive Director for the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention. Her grandson, Kevin, was featured in the film Food, Inc., He was the little boy that tragically died after eating a contaminated ground meat patty. It was contaminated with E. coli 0157H7. Patricia, what I really like about your website is that you have the research and prevention components. So all of the issues that we've been talking about thus far on your website have excellent citations from credible scientific literature. So this is a wonderful source for consumers and researchers alike. I want to ask you something about, I want to go back to the food system that we have here in this country. What went wrong? How did your grandson's ground meat patty become contaminated? Well, of course, I cannot tell you exactly how it happened. I have some clues as to the types of things over the past 
30, 40 years, America has undergone a huge transformation in the way it produces food. And basically, what has happened is because we've made these changes, which in some cases have been significant, there's been unexpected consequences. Take our new way of husbanding the large animal, the cows. We now have these confinement centers where the animals are all together and if one of them is sick with E. coli 0157H7, they don't have any symptoms, but they can infect other members <laughs> in the crowd, and then you have more than one cow infected with E. coli 0157H7. As these animals go through the slaughtering process, there can be mistakes made, and the contents of the intestine can get on the carcass, can get on you know the equipment, And then as that material is moved down the line, it is contaminated. And then it is cut up and it is put into these large grinding machines and the contamination gets commingled with product that wasn't contaminated. So we have a lot of points along that line where we have an opportunity to do some testing and see if we can stop the production of contaminated product. And I will say this, USDA FSIS tries to do that, but they're somewhat limited. They do have daily inspection at the plants. However, there's some particulars about how this reporting gets done that seems odd, and we can certainly work to improve that. And one of the things that Barbara and I have done over the years is attend the regulatory meetings of USDA and FSIS and also the regulatory meetings for FDA so that we can help them find these points, these hazard control points where we can implement an intervention or do testing to see if the product is contaminated. That's probably a much larger answer than what you wanted, but so that your consumers or your your viewers out there understand, it is a complicated system now. And because of the complication of the system, several unexpected things happened. And one of the, the things that happened was that the good bacteria, E. coli, mutated into a more serious form called E. coli 0157H7, But there are five or six other mutations as well that all can lead to the same outcome, which is uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome and uh, death and long-term health outcomes. So it's not simple to say, well, we just need to go in there and fix it now. We're going to have to come together in a very intelligent and thoughtful way and collaborate with the people who understand food production and the people who understand epidemiological studies and the people who understand how consumers think about food and come up with a plan for improving overall holistically our food safety systems. Well, the other half of your center focuses on prevention. We've got research and we've got prevention. So why don't we talk about some of the preventive strategies that you'd like to see. And let's look at it, let's take it all the way from the feedlots and the farms to the consumer's kitchen. What do you think needs to be changed in our agricultural system? 
Well, I think one of the first things that I would say that need to be changed is we need to adopt a new approach to food. And that new approach would be best characterized by the one world, one health idea. And this is not CFI's idea all by itself. It was started by the veterinarians. And what they're saying is we need to start looking at how animals and people and environments interact. And when we start approaching it that way, even if you are just a consumer, if you start saying, wait a minute, I'm a person, I don't want to get sick, so what are the interactions with the animals via food or whatever? What are my interactions with my environments for your plants and whatever? And how is this all interacting so that I can make better food choices? If you go to the grocery store and you want to buy a strawberry in the middle of January, they don't really, they're not ready right then. So you have to consider, here I have this strawberry from another country from outside of the United States. Is that the strawberry I want to buy and feed my child? Okay? So part of it is very much so that the consumers of food have to start looking at their sources and at what risk they're willing to take for that culinary delight. Okay? Mm-hmm. I'm certainly, again, it's a, it's a basic premise that one of the videos that I think we still have on our homepage is an excellent one where this uh, gentleman talks very much about changing our approach to food. And I think that that's one of the things that has to happen so that we can start weighing the risks involved with a particular food, and all food carries risks, the risks involved, and the population you're serving it to. What a 25-year-old man or woman can tolerate is not the same as what a 2-year-old child can tolerate nor is it the same as what a pregnant woman can tolerate or someone who is going through chemotherapy or somebody who's 99 years of age. So we have to start looking at our food preparation ideas, starting with our choices and saying, what food do I want to serve this person? What risk am I willing to take for that culinary delight? And And then, of course, after that, you have to start looking at the idea that you have to follow the four core messages, which are clean, cook, separate, and chill. One of the things that we talk about in our food safety education plan, it is a farm-to-fork approach, but we go beyond because our six safe food practices report foodborne illness. Without better reporting of these foodborne diseases, we will not learn more about them. And without more knowledge about them, we cannot build the types of prevention strategies that really will be effective. I want to let our listeners know that you've got some wonderful prevention strategies lined out on your website. Yes, under our six safe food practices. Exactly. And that's something that we can start to do right now before the larger system has changes put into place. I knew our time together would fly, and I want to give you an opportunity within the next couple of minutes to just say anything to our listeners about your grandson, your organization, your work that I had neglected to ask you. Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity, and I've probably given you and your viewers a lot more information than what you may have wanted, 
But I think it's important for us all to realize that each one of us has the opportunity to affect a change. And this is very surprising to me. I've heard people say that I started out after Kevin's death as a woman who was trying to help my daughter recover from this terrible, terrible tragedy in her life. At a time when she was vulnerable, she was expecting her third child. And together we started working on learning more about the cause of the illness, and we started learning more about the illness itself. And the more we learned, the more we realized that there were many gaps and there were many things that consumers didn't understand about food. And in 2006, after four and a half years of doing that level of advocacy on our own and with another group of like-minded people, we finally decided that we needed to form our own organization the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention, and we did that. And I can't believe that we are doing what we're doing today. And I would encourage anyone out there that wants to remember that you're just one person, but one person does make a difference. And what you can say to other people about food safety and the importance of food safety will make a difference. And I encourage you to do that. I think that's a tremendous message because too often we feel too small to make a difference and you've yeah. proven otherwise. And I just want to let our listeners know that you also were awarded the Lennon Ono Grant for Peace because of your work. Well, actually, my daughter Barbara Kowalczyk was awarded that. We're a very, very proud person here called a mother. Yes. <laughs> and Barbara was uh, awarded that. She received it in Iceland on October the 9th, and I was fortunate enough that I could go and witness her get that award. Very exciting. And then shortly after that, Barbara was also selected as the ultimate game changer in food by Huffington Post. So I got to meet Ariana Huffington as well. That is terrific. I'm very, very proud of those accomplishments. That I think the work that Barbara has done, the leadership she has shown on food safety is fantastic. I agree. And it's very much needed. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. I want to just close by letting our listeners know we've been speaking with Patricia Buck, Executive Director for the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention. And Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And go forth, do good work, and visit foodborneillness.org for more information.